electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, Powell on the clock. The big decision weighing on the Fed chief. Will he or won't he? And the message either decision sends to the markets will debate and dissect that straight ahead. Plus, time ticking for TikTok. The company's CEO making his own viral video appealing to the 150 million U.S. users ahead of his testimony on Capitol Hill. Does Congress really want to pull the plug on an app used by more than half the country? And later, an electric surge for the EV makers inside NVIDIA's AI Day and the rate read on housing after a spike in sales ahead of KB's results. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Site. A full desk tonight, Bono and Ice and Dan Nathan, Guy Dami and Michael Kantopoulos from Richard Bernstein Advisors. And we start off with a countdown to what could be the most important Fed meeting of the year. I know we've called the last one, but this one is really the most important. Markets rallying ahead of tomorrow's decision with the Nasdaq leading the gains up 1.6 percent. The S&P climbing back into positive territory for the month with energy and discretionary names posting the biggest gains. The Dow up more than 300 points. And take a look at the bank stocks. The KRE ETF jumping nearly six, uh, both regionals and the money centers seeing the best day since Jan 2021. Yields, meantime, also rocketing higher. The two-year jumping nearly 25 basis points as expectations that the Fed will, in fact, raise rates tomorrow rise. A quarter point hike would bring the target rate to its highest since August 2007. So are markets truly ready for what we will hear tomorrow? You know what's amazing about the S&P 500 live at the levels? It's like a banking crisis never happened. Never happened. Never happened. Here we are at 4,000 in the S&P, 3940-ish, the 200-day moving average. Mike Wilson, if you recall, a couple weeks ago, that tactical bull call was because we held the 200-day and bounced from it. And all these different things happened, yet we're right back effectively where we started from, which is fascinating to me because I will tell you, as much as you think these bank problems are over, I don't necessarily think they are. So getting back to the Fed conversation, I mean, what could they possibly say tomorrow? I think they have to do something, something in the form of 25. If they do nothing, as much as people would like to think that's bullish, as Steve Eisman said last week, if they're scared, they being the Fed, then you should be scared as well. Or maybe nothing would be viewed as off to the races. I mean, we are in this place where we sort of, we've recouped all the losses from this bank meltdown in terms of the S&P 500, and we've lowered the terminal rate by a, a full percentage point. I mean, maybe this is a sweet spot, Michael. <laughs> Well, I think the market would be misguided if, if that's the uh, opinion that they go with, if, if the Fed pauses. At the end of the day, I mean, if they pause, it's for bad reasons. It's, it's because they expect some sort of, you know, financial instability, and that's not good for risk assets. It's not good for credit. And listen, remember, the Fed is backward looking, and they had 800,000 jobs in the last two months created. There is no chance that if you created 800,000 jobs and you don't hike, that you're not signaling to the market that things are very, very bad. And that, to me, would be an absolutely wrong read if, uh, if they don't go tomorrow. Yeah, I tend to agree. You know, you, you juxtapose the two situations, right? We're focused on monetary policy. And then you have to look at economic outlook. And, and, and to Michael's point, like, if they were to pivot after they have been so resolute in saying that inflation is the tier one risk that we are 
primarily focused on, for them to completely change course would definitely be a change of tune, and I, and I would be extremely concerned. And you know, the, the last thing I'll say is kind of looking forward at Fed funds futures, it really doesn't make sense that, that you see this terminal rate coming off. Even if they were to say some language that is perceived as dovish, the fact that they are likely to keep things where they are, the pause is what I think is being overlooked. So what is this rally all about? This little rally that we've seen. You're asking this guy? Yes. You're asking what this guy who's, who's, who's been short? Right, exactly. Well, I said to you on Friday, I thought that, I, I said on Friday, I thought the NASDAQ was probably the fattest pitch out yeah. there as on the short side yesterday. I, we, we, we had a, a healthy discussion about the banks. I still think they are a short on rallies. I'm in guys' camp. And if you think that the stock market, or if you believe that the stock market is a discounting mechanism, it is not discounting the much higher likelihood of a recession in 2023 right now. I mean, it's just not. And that was a large part of the rally that we saw in the S&P and the NASDAQ in January, that we were supposed to have this very soft landing or maybe a no landing. I think everything that's going on here increases the odds of a difficult economic outlook or, you know, at some point in mid to later this year. And listen, you know, we got a VIX at 21 here. It just seems like everything looks pretty cool. You look at some of these charts up there, and I'll just tell you this. If you take the macro out of it, you look at that NASDAQ 100 chart, it looks great. I mean, like the technical setup does look really nice. Look at how some of these mega cap tech stocks acted today. That's after they already outperformed massively. Like last week, they were right. a flight to the stability. So again, I'm wrong right now. I don't think I'm wrong on the banks. And maybe pressing them yesterday and the way in which I was talking about them uh-huh. maybe didn't feel great. But don't forget this, people. First Republic got cut in half yesterday, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, like literally cut in half, right? And there was other funky stuff going on with the financial names. This is the playbook, though, back to 2008. I'm not saying it's 2008. The sort of volatility that we saw day to day, you know, investor sentiment can shift on a dime like that. So to me, I'm going to stay convicted here. I'm going to be cognizant of the fact that maybe tech does have some moats that some yeah. of the other parts of the market do have. Yeah, because that's what Don't we have. haven't seen shift in terms of investor sentiment, at least since this banking crisis began last week. And that is, the pouring into technology, mm-hmm. the notion that it's a flight. I mean, we're up more than 5% since this whole crisis began. Right. And, and, Guy, this is your game. If you take a look at the chart right. and you, you don't like know this. what it is, and, I mean, what would you say? Yeah, about you're you're 100% right. You were so inside my that? head because okay. Dan teed that up, and you're exactly. in my head, and the whole thing's happening on this Thursday night, which is fantastic, by the way. But if you looked at the chart, didn't know what it was. Some of these charts look Fantastic. And you have to say maybe the Nasdaq, which actually held the 200-day moving average, we never traded through it and it's bounced. That does look great. But then ask yourself this. I mean, think about what's going on with the banks. 73% of this economy is driven by people buying things. People buy things typically on credit. Credit conditions are going to tighten. You know, you hear the politicians say that the U.S. taxpayer is not paying for this. Yeah, I get it. But guess what? They are paying for it because the banks are going to put all those fees on the back of you. Credit conditions will tighten by almost by definition. That means earnings come down. And why should we be paying a premium multiple for earnings in this type of environment? Yeah, I, I think, listen, last year you had a liquidity bubble popping. And I think much of what we've seen this year in tech running right now is sort of this misperception that liquidity is going to loosen this year. The reality is the Fed's still engaged in quantitative tightening. A year ago, they were still engaged in quantitative easing at this point. The 450 basis points of hikes that you had last year from the Fed, those are taking hold today. You know, I don't want to sit here and say that 
SVB was because of the one-year anniversary of Fed hikes. But it does seem a little coincidental that we've heard time and time again about the lagged and variable effects of tightening monetary policy. And then what happens? Inverted yield curve and banks start to fail. I mean, this is what's going to happen, you know, consistently now over time because of the tight financial conditions. And to Guy's point, credit conditions in particular, and those are only getting tighter. They're not loosening. Yeah, I mean, what was interesting out of the Bank of America fund manager survey today, 31% of those polled see a systemic, their number one concern is no longer inflation. It's a systemic credit risk. Yeah, I mean, uh, we talked about the NASDAQ 100, and you talked about the chart, taking the name off of it and looking at it. And I do agree that it paints one particularly bullish picture. But if you look at the performance of the overall index and then kind of overlay that with the outperformance that we've gotten from semis, from tech, I think that shows that there's something bubbling underneath the surface. When you look at the market caps of those NASDAQ 100 companies, you would expect that, that, that you know, uh, the S&P would be trending much higher given the performance that they're contributing to that overall index. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we've essentially been range trading with that outperformance, to me, shows that there's something under the surface that's, that's not so positive. That's a great point. And just look at the Russell 2000. So you look at small caps, it's still down 11% from its highs that was making just in early February. And if you think that that is going to be one of the areas that are one of the parts of the economy, small cap, that have a harder time accessing credit to larger caps. That, rallying that, in the past couple of days. Well, rallying, but Mel, but my point is it was trading at 2000 in the start of February, and here it is right now just below um, 1800 So, like, when you think about the underperformance that it's had, I mean, fine, it's had a little bounce here. Um, and I'll just make one other point. You know, we just talked, you just mentioned what the two-year is doing. This volatility, and Guy's been saying this for months and months, it sounds like a year, this volatility is not helping the bank situation you know, like at all, right? It gives less clarity. And part of our discussion that we had with Karen about read the 10Ks of these bank stocks, Go back to 08 and 09. The 10Ks were ephemeral, people, okay? They, they were a period in time. It was a snapshot. But when you have risk assets that a lot of these things are based on moving around at a pace in which we've never seen before, and it's inter, like inter, intertwined with the economy and the way things are moving with unprecedented sort of like interplay by central banks, by federal re- re- regulation, we have no idea. So, like, that's my point is I still think there's a lot of uncertainty here. I think the guy's point, the valuations don't make a lot of sense. Let's look under the hood, like Bonowin said. I mean, marketing a market is very difficult in this environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no question about it. And then just on top of all of that, you know, today I saw a lot of people talking about how semis are no longer cyclical. I mean, <laughs> I've heard, no, but I'm telling you, that's the getting out there in the ether now. I would just, I would sort of talk about Dan's ephemeral. I don't know how to spell it or don't know what it means. It so I'll, Yeah, it, I, it doesn't, right? It's an odd <laughs> one. I would have gotten screwed yeah. up on the spelling bee. But when you start hearing people talk about, you know, stocks no longer being cyclical and those types of things, that to me is a bit of a warning sign as well. All right, let's get some more on the rates market, the volatility we've seen there. Bring in Rick Santelli. Rick, um, nice to see you. We were just talking about the extraordinary volatility, particularly in the two-year. Yeah, it really is unbelievable. And I've seen a lot of wild markets. And, you know, last week in a two-year, you were, what, off 70 basis points plus. Let's look at a couple of weeks of two-year. You see the chart there. We've come from above 5%, and here we sit. And today, look at the right side of that graph. It just looks like a little nib. But we're up 20 basis points today, yes. Liquidity is an issue, but I have to tell you, it might take a lot of 30 seconds to move a big order, but they're getting filled. It just covers a lot of ground to get 
the order, Phil. And if you look at what's going on overseas, that's boons versus tens. You can see that whether it's guilt, boons, we're all basically trading the same formation. And all the long-dated treasuries are below their extremes from last fall. And that, to me, is, and I've said it a thousand times, I'll say it a thousand times more, that is important to pay attention to. I don't care how good the charts look now. The inverted curve, the way tens are acting, gilts are acting, boons are acting, with guns hot central banks means that the markets are looking for a slowing. End of story. And if you look at June Fed Fund futures, the new fulcrum, because things have changed so dramatically, certainly it's still pricing in 25 for tomorrow, but it's well off its lows. The terminal rate has come up quite a bit, and that contract was at 94.52 a, a week and a half ago. It, it's a 95.07 now. We've covered a lot of ground. And finally, if you open that chart up on June Fed Funds year to date, you can see we've changed the structure of the Fed Funds contract, even though it is pricing in 25. Do I believe we're going to have all those eases on the back end? Maybe. But let's face it, this market could move just like any other T-bill market, and it's going to, trust me. Back to you. Hey, Rick, I thought one of the mandates of the Federal Reserve was stable prices. I don't know. I just read that in one of those books. I mean, as I've said a hundred times, the U.S. bond is still, correct me if I'm wrong, still the largest economy in the world. That's correct, right? I, I didn't lose something somewhere. I mean, the U.S. bond market should be the most liquid asset in the history of mankind, and it trades like a $135 million biotech stock with one drug in the pipeline. I mean, it's broken. So my question to you is, at what point, if any, does the volatility we're seeing in the bond market, which, by the way, is unprecedented, manifest itself in the equity market? You know, I think that it's, it's going to do that ultimately before we move towards a recessionary move. And I do think the recessionary move is coming. But just consider the breadth of last week's two-year drop and consider how it will look if we are starting to move into recession to see the two-year and the curve less inverted because all rates come down. That's where the transmission is, in my opinion. Uh, and that's where we'll see some of the most volatile when the market truly senses, A, the Fed's done, and B, well, B, inflation may be slain, but it certainly is going to bring back the U.S. economy. Rick, thank you. Rick Santelli. Our next guest warns the market is mispricing Fed policy. Rebecca Patterson is a former chief investment strategist at Hedge Fund Bridgewater Associates. Rebecca joins us here on set. Of course, she's been in the Fast Money family for a very long time. So we welcome you back. Great to have you here in person. Great to be here. Um, what, what is the market mispricing at this point? I mean, the fact that we're rallying into this Fed meeting? Well, I, I think the whole desk, you all covered it really well already and Rick did as well that Tomorrow, who knows? We can make educated guesses. Do they go 25? Do they pause? How did the language go? But the bigger deal, the bigger issue for investors are these rate cuts getting priced in later this year and a pretty rapid pace. And, you know, in 1987 and 1998, we saw that sort of quick pivot to easing. But back then, the Fed didn't have the toolkit it has today, and it didn't have the inflation problem it has today. So for the market to be right on rates and the Fed to pivot that fast, I think you all said it really well. We're either going to have to see a lot more financial stability or instability, pardon, which obviously is bad for stocks, or the economy is going to have to slow so quickly that it brings inflation down close or below target in months, which, I mean, given that core CPI is still five and a half percent, wages are still growing six percent. Mm -hmm. 
again, it's going to be really bad for earnings. So I don't see a scenario where rates are right and equities are right. Once upon a time, and I think this was like two times ago, when the markets were pricing in a cut at the end of the year, and this is before they bumped it to next year and then bumped it back to this year, Mm -hmm. um, he actually guided and said, I don't see that happening in the back half of the year. And I wonder, you know, is he going to go out on a limb and actually try to manage that market expectation now? I mean, that would be an interesting market reaction to see. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be the inter, interday trading that we get tomorrow right. and, and probably the day after as people parse the press conference and the dot plots and the new forecasts that come out. But, but again, I think if you're trading the intraday, you've got to focus on that. If you're looking out over the next three to six months, to me, this is very easy. It's not confusing. You, you lean into rallies and sell them. Because, because credit is going to tighten for sure. Credit's tightening for sure. Companies are going to get more cautious. We are going to see jobless claims starting to inch higher. Inflation will come down, but not fast enough for the Fed to ease. Yeah, I, I, I agree, Rebecca. I mean, I think, um, you know, if, if the market is pricing in cuts in June and Powell wants, you know, the, the market to believe that he's nowhere near cuts, right? It, it does offer a, a bit of a communication challenge, though, for him, doesn't it? I mean, how do you think the press conference is going to go? What's, what's, is he going to do the, the dovish hike? Could he do a hawkish pause and get the same effect? He could do either, and I'm sure that's something they've been debating for the last few days and probably today. Um, and both have pros and cons, right? If you pause, you could freak people out. That's my technical term, that you know something they don't. Um, you could cause the market to rally, financial conditions ease. That goes against their goal. Mm-hmm. If you hike but try to have dovish language but people focus on the hike, maybe that exacerbates some of the instability that's still percolating, even if it's calmed down today. So there is no easy decision tomorrow. This, this, you might have said this is the most important meeting. I don't know if it's the most important. It's definitely the hardest one the Fed's faced in this cycle. So the biggest opportunity for a misstep. I mean, I think hardest equals biggest opportunity for a misstep. I'm, I'm curious, Rebecca, in terms of mispricing, I mean, the markets aren't a monolith. So which areas of the market do you think are mispricing the Fed the most? Well, rates directly, certainly. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to think about, well, what do I want to own in this environment? Where are the places to hide or where are the opportunities? And you all are going to be much better than I ever am at the single securities. But I would want to make sure that I'm covered for my base case, which is a recession starting later this year and rates staying higher for longer. So I would be nervous about having too much tech or growth stocks that are more liquidity sensitive. I think they are vulnerable, not just because of the valuations. Mm-hmm. I would want to have some exposure to some good old-fashioned basic defensives, things like healthcare and utilities. Gold has rallied. Now, Bitcoin, different story. We'll talk about that next time I come on. But I would want to have some gold. I would not want to have some Bitcoin right here because it's fintech. And at the end of the day, if we're, if we're looking at liquidity to tighten, that's going to be hit by that, just like the tech stocks. Rebecca, it's always great to have you here on set with us. Great to be back with you. Anytime. Thank Rebecca you. Patterson. Guy, do you like Rebecca's playbook? Gold, for sure. I mean, I, and I'll say this. There might be a lot of people out there that are bullish gold, and this is not meant to be nuanced. I don't think the market is long of gold, to use an old term from the old days. And when the market does get long, it's not going to be from these levels. It's going to be from significantly higher when all the systems finally kick in. So I'm with RP for sure. And I will echo what you said. It is wonderful having her back.
It is excellent having her back. I just say this that she just mentioned staples, the defensives, uh, utilities, healthcare. They don't. You see how poorly they acted today. I mean, literally, they were being thrown out. I mean, so it's kind of interesting when you think about how the market closed the day. It just surged. It's, it feels very, very speculative right here, and that just doesn't seem to be pricing for all the inputs that she just gave us of what's not being priced in right here. I just think that the stuff that the people are watching here right now. I mean, like this late day rally, just to me, just feels really unnatural. I really do feel like the higher we go um, is the harder we could fall, especially if some of the banking stuff uh, picks up again. All right, coming up, we've got an earnings alert on Nike shares giving up earlier gains after reporting results. We're bringing the details next. Plus, EV stocks speeding higher as risk on assets catch a bid. But is there any charge left in the trade? We'll debate that when Fast Money returns. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on Nike. Shares of the company giving up early gains despite an earnings beat in its Q3. Strong sales in North America and Europe boosting Nike's top line, although demand in China seeing an 8% drop. Christina Parsonellis has been listening to the conference call. As the latest, Christina. Well, basketball legends Michael Jordan and LeBron James still a driving force for Nike with the CEO saying on the call, basketball is in the strongest position it's ever been. Both franchises push demand for kicks in North America up 27% in the quarter and Europe up 17% in the quarter. The strong earnings report that we saw for just after four shows consumers are replenishing their sneakers and are willing to spend more despite high prices, all while competitor Adidas, for example, struggles with its split for Kanye West and its Yeezy brand. Although the CFO just said on the crawl right now, quote, we may continue to face heightened volatility. Another concern, like you mentioned, is China sales growth. And I want to point out on a currency neutral basis, only up 1%. The CEO blaming on the call, quote, a very challenging December following a shift in the country's COVID problems. Lastly, Nike did have declining margins and inventory up 16% year over year. But when compared to Q2, inventory was actually greater than 40%. So Nike is definitely trying to get inventory in control. And that's exactly what they're talking about on the call right now. All right, Christina, thanks. Christina Parsonopoulos. Okay, so inventory is still an issue. Uh, China is still an issue. Guy. Margin. So, listen, Margin, image, yeah. up at 16% year over year, but that's against 14% sales growth. So, actually, it's getting better. But now it comes down to valuation, right? So, Nike at close to 32 times next year's numbers in this environment with, again, margins that have been contracting. Do you want to pay for that? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So, I think the knee jerk reaction on North America sales being better, the market got all giddy. Then they said, well, wait a second, this is still an expensive stock. So, for me, 
I don't think it's a touch here at all. I think you look for lower prices, which I think you will see. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You know, this is the sort of guidance that I think makes sense. It's like, like, don't get over your skis, especially given the, the lack of clarity that they have. You know, China is obviously a really important market. I think, you know, K-Parts just mentioned that kind of shift that, that cut a lot of, I think, U.S. multinationals from zero COVID, you know, out. Um, so, like, that guidance is fine. I think the fact that they're saying that they're going to have margin pressure for the balance of the year, that makes sense. And I, I suspect that's something we're going to hear as we get into earnings next month a little bit from lots of U.S. multinationals. Yeah, and I think it also just highlights, you know, the, the demographic shift we're seeing. You know, Lulu, there was a study that was out, I'm not sure if it was Morgan Stanley or Bank of America, pretty much talked about demographic trends of the, the younger consumer. And Lulu and Nike were right at the top of that. If any other company had come out with a similar guidance, right, I think the stock would be down close to double digits. So I do think it is testament to, to one, their, their, their management of inventory, like the, the shift to DTC, it's still building. And we talk about gross margins. That is of concern, along with the multiple. But the fact that, that the stock is not off more when they've been a bit conservative, to me, speaks volume about the brand. Yeah. If you are a believer that the consumer is going to be weak or weakened, Michael, should you be excited about uh, consumer stocks that trade at a premium? No, we don't, we don't think you should be. I mean, listen, credit's clearly tightening. Uh, we know the consumer is going to weaken over the back half of this year. I mean, they, you, know, you look at credit card balances, they've been drawn up to, a, to a quite a large degree. You look at excess savings post-pandemic, it's, they've been drawn down. And you think about everything we've spoken about, you know, listen, we're in an earnings recession. It just started. That plus tighter financial conditions and tighter credit conditions means that the jobs market ultimately will slow and the consumer should start to lose confidence. And so I don't think that's the right place to be. You're going to watch this movie that comes out? It was well, April 6th. A lot of movies come out. No, this is a, the <laughs> Damon movie. Damon Affleck. Yes. <laughs> Matt Damon and Ben Affleck teaming up again. I love the. You know, they're big fans of the show. It's It's the Phil Knight story. The the whole Nike story. Oh, my God. OMG. I think as a show, Uh we should do the show, then collectively go to a theater in in the area and watch it together. And then we could talk about it the next day. Would you do like that? A different kind of show. We could have like milk duds together. You haven't seen a movie in the theater since Goodfellas. Uh, 1972. (laughs) Oh, Godfather. Yeah. 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 Much different experience. Um, There is a lot more Fast Money to come. So much. Here's what's coming up next. Plugged in and charged up. EV stocks speeding higher. And one name is putting its junk rating in the rear view. All the news from Electric Avenue next. Plus, the chief TikToker making his own viral video. What the CEO of the Chinese video app told users. Ahead of what's sure to be a grill on Capitol Hill. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's all green lights for EV stocks today. Tesla leading the charge up 8% a day after Moody's brought its debt uh, rating out of junk territory. Insurance registration data also out of China suggesting Tesla sales in that region could hit a record in the first quarter. Shares are now up more than 60% this year. Um, This is one of these growth trades that seem to be doing well in spite of everything that is going on in this world, Guy. Tesla's been a trade. Listen, 
wrong in the earnings. I'll be the first to say it. You know, when in 155, I said fade it. You have to. It's had a huge move off 103. That was wrong. But then as it approached the 200-day moving average around 219, 220, on this show we said it has a date with 165. Go back and look a week and a half or so ago. 163.86 bounced from there. You continue to trade the stock in those ranges. It probably trends back up to 210. Then you fade the sucker again, Melms. Here's a public service announcement. Dan is going to talk about Tesla right now. So if it <laughs> bothers you that he's going to be bearish. What does that mean? You know, just. PSA. Yeah. I'm going to sound, a lot, I'm gonna a, sound a lot smarter than you think, Mel. Um, okay, so we just talked about Nike in China, right? So why did the stock rally 7% today? Because some third-party data about some China sales, mm-hmm. okay? We know that they missed China sales last quarter. We know that they cut prices last quarter. We know that, um, you know, we just talked about margins. We just talked about a U.S. multinational is guiding down for margins for the year. Well, guess what, people? Last year, margins, gross margins for Tesla were 25.6%. This year, consensus has them at 22.14. Is that incorporated? the potential for a recession here in the U.S. or abroad? Is it, is it pricing in any potential for all the competition that's coming online or any geopolitical issues as it might relate to China and Taiwan? So my point is, I actually think, you know, flat to down EPS, which is what is consensus right now, might be the best case scenario and margins could be under pressure further. So if this is a growth stock, if it's a margin story and the margins and the earnings uh, might be worse than what's expected right now, and I don't know how you could listen to everything I just said and not think that that's going to be the case, then the stock really shouldn't be rallying, in my opinion. Guys <laughs> laughing. It's almost like you're saying, I can't understand why you would listen to me and not believe everything that I just said because I am right, which may be the case. But there is a whole other argument that says, well, right now, every other EV maker, including the legacy OEMs, are also cutting price. And there is an opportunity for Tesla, the growth stock, to actually grow and claim market share in the face of weakness from what had been viewed as the oncoming competition, which doesn't seem so fierce anymore. What do you think? Well, clearly it shows pricing power in, in terms of their ability to kind of reduce costs, offer discounts, and, and look to take market share. I'm kind of with Dan, though. Like, when you have declining margins, it makes for, it does not, it flies in the face of long-term accretive, uh, you know, accretive growth or, and stock performance. So, you know, I, I do think it's somewhat of a challenging backdrop. With that said, there have been so many people that have been carried out trying to short Tesla that I just refuse to do it. Do you know how much it, money was it, made short Tesla last year? Seven hundred billion dollars. Okay, I'm just saying. Like, like, I'm just saying. Like, think about how much money was lost before then. Those people were. How much money was lost before then? And how many of those? I'm not saying. I'm not saying. I'm not saying was made on the short side. But what I'm saying is, is that it went from 1.2 trillion at the end of 2021 down to what was it? 300 billion dollars just you know two months ago. So what I'm saying is, we got a market here, okay, and it's pretty wide. And where the stock has been trading over the last few months is really at the low end of that. And so they need they actually have all of the risk. Every OEM on the planet, okay, is focused on their market share in EVs, all right? So they have the most to lose. Not a $55 billion market cap company like GM, which is going to, literally, they're going to be around in 100 years, GM, okay? Like, the jury's still out, in my opinion, whether Tesla's going to be around. And you can say, well, they're not particularly profitable and this and that, whatever. But, like, that's the way I think about it. Who's got the most to lose? It's not GM and Ford. When you look at innovation and disruption and the value destruction and then sort of how much they've rallied from the lows, it just shows you that the market doesn't know how to price risk right now. It has no clue. And that's a problem, right? And, and listen, at the end of the day, a lot of these companies are cyclical. And cyclicals don't do well at end of cycle. And it's as simple as that. 
Coming up, even the boss is posting TikToks. Why the Chinese app CEO made his own video ahead of a big hearing on Capitol Hill. That story is next. Plus, how Nvidia is getting in on the AI action, and how options traders are playing the news when Fast Money returns. Back to Fast Money. Another check on the markets today. Stocks rallying ahead of tomorrow's big Fed decision. The Dow jumping more than 300 points. The S&P up 1.3 percent. And the Nasdaq leading the gains up more than 1.5 percent. It's sixth positive session in seven. In the after hours, shares of GameStop surging on the back results. The company posting a surprise profit, the first in two years, but not providing any guidance, which it has not done since the beginning of the pandemic. All right, meantime, TikTok will take center stage in D.C. later this week. The CEO is expected to testify Thursday about the app's security and ties to China. But he made an appeal directly to U.S. users of the app ahead of the hearing. CBC's Julia Borson's got the details. Julia. Melissa, that's right. TikTok CEO showed Z Chu has reportedly met with at least a half dozen members of the House Energy and Commerce Committee before that testimony set for Thursday. And just today, the company unveiled new community guidelines highlighting TikTok's commitment to free speech and cracking down on AI deepfakes. Just this morning, Chu posting a TikTok video in which he laid out the case for TikTok's importance to the American public. This comes at a pivotal moment for us. Some politicians have started talking about banning TikTok. Now, this could take TikTok away from all 150 million of you. I'll be testifying before Congress later this week to share all that we're doing to protect Americans using the app. Take a look at the movement of all of TikTok's rivals, Snap, Pinterest, Meta, all of those shares much higher today. Snap up nearly 7%. Now, these are stocks that have traded higher over the past several weeks and even beyond on growing expectations that TikTok could be banned or that a forced sale could amount to a ban or would prevent the company from being the competitive force that it has been. TikTok has, of course, taken share both in terms of time spent of consumers and also of ad dollars. Melissa? Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. It's definitely a powerful appeal when the CEO of TikTok can say, if there is a ban, they're going to take it away from half of all of you out there in the whole country. Gone. No more TikTok. What are you going to do? Go to the library, maybe. Read a (laughs) freaking book. I mean, just a thought. I don't know. No, it's interesting. I mean, and how do you trade this? I mean, this seems to be pretty bipartisan, number one. We've been talking about this for a while, sort of what could get real fuel for a name like Snap is exactly this. And Dan has traded it well. But even at $11.50 where it's now, I think this headline alone could get Snap up 40, 50 percent and still be in a company that's in a lot of trouble. So I think as a trading vehicle, Snap is the way to do it. There are a few things in uh, America these days that really unite a big part of the population. And apparently TikTok is one of those unique things that people are united about in that they love it. They are monthly active users. Half the country. Who wants to own that they voted for banning TikTok? Or does China, being scared of China, does that outweigh love of TikTok. I don't know. 
You know, it's interesting. We, we talked about this with social platforms now, it feels like for six, seven years now, and it seems like U.S. consumers are not particularly worried about their privacy, right, when yeah. it comes to these platforms, and they're not, they don't mind that they are the product in, in, in many of these situations. So, again, I, I agree with you. I think that this is probably um, a bigger, it's just a piece in a bigger puzzle, if you think about it. Like, we're going back and forth with China on a whole host of things. Um, you know, it started with tariffs and forced technology transfer and the chip stuff that we're going on right now. This is just going to be one piece of the puzzle, but I do bring it back to um, Apple and Tesla. And I think that if this stock, if this company, excuse me, this service gets banned here um, in the U.S., there's going to be far reaching um, implications for some of our much larger U.S. multinationals. For more on TikTok, let's bring in Brent Thill of Jeffries. Brent, great to have you with us. Is, is there an, a back of the envelope calculation that one can do or maybe you have done as to how much Meta would actually gain if there were no more TikTok or how much Snap would gain if there were no more TikTok? Well, there's no doubt that both those are the beneficiaries because everyone's been running away uh, towards TikTok. So those are the two big platforms. And I think Reels from Meta has really come back. And despite if they go away or not, I think Reels has huge momentum and is creating you know a flywheel for, for, for Meta that they haven't seen for a while, so the momentum's building there. Uh, but yeah, a, a clear ban would be would be the most beneficial to, to Meta and Snap. And uh, beyond that, perhaps it, it frees up some other ad dollars. Usually, the search dollars aren't aren't, aren't uh, combined with the social dollars, but certainly, uh, you know, the rest of the group w would 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 benefit. I, I don't think that happens. Uh, to be honest, I think there's going to be a way that they can find out uh, a way way to find. Uh, you know, a balance between what what they want and what what the government wants, and ultimately, I, I don't think it gets fully banned because, as you said, half the country is using it. There's five million small businesses on it. It is, uh, you know, contagious in my household. And you look at the the young the young uh, generation that's on this. I, there would be a huge revolt uh, revolt from from getting banned. Uh, but I think ultimately. Um, this can be uh, this can be dealt with in a way uh, with different ownership, a different board, different structure to to ensure that, you know, we don't get the situations that we had with, you know, the Forbes reporter that was followed uh, in their GPS. I mean, some of these things are, are pretty creepy in terms of what has gone on behind the scenes. So clearly that needs to be addressed before before uh, this can move forward. Let's say there is an announcement, you know, post hearing on Thursday that TikTok is not going to get. Uh, not going to be subject to an outright ban, that, that they will exist in some way, shape, or form, um, housed within the U.S., whatever you want to call it. Uh, what, does, what does Meta do? How much comes out of the stock? Meta's been rising on the cost savings. So, mm -hmm. you know, last fall when they came out with the plan, it came out two weeks after and cut the plan, and the stock's doubled on, on the operational spend. It, it hasn't been running on the, the TikTok news. It's been running on the core operational improvement, uh, numbers are going to start to get easier. You're going to see growth rates uh, reaccelerate, albeit single digit. You're going to go from low single digit to perhaps mid to high single digit by the end of the year. So I think it's running more on that. Stocks at 16 times earnings. You know, you've had a uh, a run out of banks and in industrials and cyclicals and other other names. So I think that's been a rotational uh, beneficiary in the cost savings. It really has not. Uh, you know, the investors that I talk to, in which are institutional investors, are really focused on that. Not on, not on this. So yeah, it, it's going to be a downdraft if if it doesn't to both Snap and Meta. Uh, you know, call it probably less for Meta. It's probably going to be a bigger downdraft for Snap if if they don't get banned. 
All right, uh, but, but I, I think ultimately it goes back to it goes back to a cheap stock for Meta and, and the cost discipline that they they're putting forward. All right, thanks, Brent. We got to let you go. We got some details coming out of the Nike conference. Call me in time. Um, let's get back to Christina Parks and Nevelis. We're watching the stock, by the way, down by about 1.7 percent right now. Christina. Yeah, we just got an update on guidance for Nike fiscal 2023 revenue guidance. They're saying it's set to grow to high single digits, which is actually an improvement from the mid single digit guidance they provided last quarter. They also said for Q4 revenue guidance, it's going to be flat to low single digit growth. And that's because they're still working through excess inventory. Uh, Nike CFO was just weighing in on why Q3 margins were down dramatically. Uh, there are several reasons, higher markdowns, increased product input costs, elevated freight and logistics expenses, as well as higher supply chain network costs. And all of that wasn't was only partially offset by uh, their pricing actions. And then there's one extra little thing here. Nike did say that they are beginning to see a rebound in China, more specifically uh, in store uh, foot action over there. So uh, those are the latest that we're getting from the earnings call. All right, Christina, thanks. Christina Parks Nevelis. Um, so, I mean, as long as inventory is, a, is an issue, which it clearly is, the margins are going to continue to be under pressure, and that's exactly what we're hearing. And if that was the only story, all right, we could just, but the, yes. the, now the other side of that coin, or part of that coin, is the consumer's going to slow down as well. So there's going to be a demand component to this as well. So, rising inventories, decreasing margins, demand destruction possibly on the back of a weakened consumer with a stock that's trading again 30 times, 32 times next year's numbers. It's too expensive. It's not, a, I'm not, as I say, casting aspersions here. Nike's a great company, just happens to be expensive in this environment. Coming up, two big tech names going all in on AI today. We'll bring you the latest rollout in the rise of the robots next. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. NVIDIA going all in on AI today, announcing a partnership with Adobe to co-develop a new generation of advanced model chips. CEO Jensen Huang calling this the, quote, iPhone moment of AI. Jim Cramer sitting down with Huang after his event. Here's what he had to say. The world is, is uh, absolutely ready for this because we, we want more, more productivity. We want to do more with less. There are some major problems that we would like to be able to attack without, that without the help of AI, we can't really get to it. For example, uh, we announced at GTC this platform called BioNemo. And it's an end-to-end -end system that, that includes uh, imaging systems, uh, everything from uh, accelerating cryo-EM, mass spec, um, x-ray crystallography. Be sure to catch the full interview, top of the hour on Mad Money. Um, here's the question, though. You can believe that NVIDIA is a ticket when it comes to the AI trade. But do you pay 60 times for the stock? Do you pay 60 times for the stock? 20 times revenue, 60 times forward earnings. I mean, that hasn't stopped people now for the sure. last 50 or $60. I mean, they're looking past all this. They think they're at the forefront. This is going to be the most, one of the five most important companies in the world. I get the whole thing. Forget about a trillion dollars. This is headed to a trillion and a half, two trillion dollar market cap. You hear that almost on a daily basis. I'll say this, though, over the last five years or so, you've seen some really lumpy quarters out of NVIDIA, both on the good side of the ledger and the bad side of the ledger. So as much as they're at the forefront here, my sense is they're getting a little above the, over their skis at these levels. 
Yeah, I tend to agree, but I still think it's a strong company. So if you kind of look at the price action, it's almost retraced that move back to the high. But as you mentioned, the multiple has expanded by about 10 turns. What I will say is a lot of that is attributable to the fact that people are looking forward and saying there's going to be some annual recurring revenue now. This is no longer just going to be a hardware, uh, a hardware company. And I think that changes the game. We talked about uh, resetting expectations around Apple and services and things of that nature. I think the same thing applies here. Meantime, options traders are betting the AI push means more gains ahead for NVIDIA. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Yeah, NVIDIA was the third busiest single stock option and bullish bets narrowly beating the bearish ones today. The busiest call activity was in the 260 strike calls that expire at the end of this week. Over 33,000 of those traded for a little over six bucks. A contract buyers are obviously betting that the stock will finish the week more than 2% higher than where it closed today. But I should also point out that the 250 puts were also extremely busy. So it seems that there are two minds within the options markets about what's next for NVIDIA. Thanks, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, a real estate roundup. We'll dive into today's hot housing data and look ahead to KB Home Earnings on deck. Stick around. The home suite, home trade is ahead. More Fast Money than two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Existing home sales soaring in February as mortgage rates cooled up 14.5% from the previous month, the biggest gain since July 2020. Major home builder stocks rising today. All this action comes ahead of KB Homes' earnings report before, or excuse me, after the bell uh, tomorrow. Could we be possibly in a sweet spot when it comes to housing? I mean, rates have come down a little bit. You have the supply demand issue here still tight, Michael. Yeah, I mean, listen, it makes it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, prices have started to come down. If you look at the data, you know, it's really the sub-million-dollar homes that you know drove the 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 um, the action today. It's not the high-end homes, right? It's 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 the lower-priced homes. Um, prices have come down. Rates came down a little bit. All of that conspires to help the housing market. But remember, the housing market is a high-multiplier segment of the economy. So any sort of strength there makes the Fed's jobs har- harder. It's interesting. The stocks are telling you a very interesting story. I mean, they're all pushing towards levels we last saw in December of 2021 when they're all making all-time highs. These stocks have been grinding higher. I think you can continue to stay long. I know Dan's going to shake his head at me, but he is shaking, right? I, I can I mean, see it out of peripheral vision. There's an F in that, I think, somewhere. But I think they go higher from here, Mel. At least two. Uh, you like real estate here. Uh, I like real estate as, as a hedge to a general overall portfolio, right? I, I can't say that I'm willing to go on. The thing that, that I think gives you some margin of safety is just the multiple. And you've seen so much outflow there. I think that gives you some, some margin of safety there. And the fact that it's backed by and financed by a hard asset. And at this moment in time, that's something that I want in my portfolio. All right. Up next, final trades. For the final trade, let's go around the horn. Michael Kantopoulos. Long-term treasuries. Bonowin. I think Snap and Meta will both be beneficiaries here, but I think Meta has more of a margin of safety. Dan. You know, I, you didn't let me talk in the NVIDIA thing. I was going to do it. I was going to do a would you rather because NVIDIA and Tesla are both about the same market cap at about like 630 or something like that. That's what you wanted to do? Oh, you're say, doing it. I was going to say NVIDIA. I don't want to buy it here. I like Snap, though. New York you sports. You would have rather NVIDIA over Tesla. Yeah. He's self would you rather. Yeah. By the, the way, New York, I didn't actually get to do it, though. That's kind of the point. I'm trying to give a tribute here. And okay, sorry. New York sports have had some amazing captains. Willis Reed at the top of the list. Willis Reed passed away today. So 
Fast Money family, condolences to the Reed family. I mean that sincerely. CMG comes out Chipotle Mexican Grill. Comes out other ways. (laughs) Noted. That's for another show, Melbs. All right. Uh, Michael, great to have you here on set. Thanks for watching Fast. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.